There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show. Wednesday morning, the 13th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Last night, the doll was asked to adopt the terms of reference for an inquiry into the death of Shane O'Farrell as drafted by Judge Gerard Hockton in line with the family's wishes. Shane was just 23 when he was cycling home and killed in a hit and run by a man who should have been in prison according to his bail terms. Shane died close to his home in Carrickmacross in August of 2011 and his family have had many questions to ask ever since. I want to acknowledge that we're all working towards achieving the same goal uh, and that is finding an appropriate response to the acute pain of the O'Farrell family arising from the dreadful loss and their search for answers. Minister Charlie Flanagan addressing a Fianna Fáil private member's motion saying everybody had the same end goal but he saw some legal difficulties. The terms of reference for the scoping exercise are focused as required by law which was clearly set out as Deputy O'Callaghan has acknowledged in the Supreme Court case of Shattering Gearan uh, to reduce the risk of legal challenge to the recommendations of the scoping exercise. Indeed that judgment requires the terms of reference of a scoping exercise to be as specific as possible to remove potential ambiguity and focused enough to promote a timely outcome to ensure fairness to all of the parties involved. Charlie Flanagan was addressing Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on Justice Jim O'Callaghan who had questioned if that ruling in the Supreme Court by Justice O'Donnell applied to this case. When you talked about how the lack of clarity about the legal nature of any ad hoc inquiry as a preliminary exercise can give rise to undesirable uncertainty, both as to the steps required and the legal principles to be applied to such an exercise. However, in the instance of this scoping exercise, we don't see any such issues arising. So in the circumstances, last can Corla, I would ask that the, the Minister and the Government go back to Judge Halton, who presumably has done a huge amount of work in respect of a scoping inquiry, and say to him that, in fact, they're prepared to allow him to consider a scoping inquiry under the broader terms of reference suggested by him in April 2019. He's a judge. He's a former member of the judiciary. He put forward these terms of reference in the knowledge of what was contained 
in the case of Shatter against Gearan. Jim O'Callaghan, Fianna Falls spokesperson on justice, was flanked uh, by the local TD and former Minister for Justice, Brandon Smith, as well as Niall O'Connells, a former Fianna Falls spokesperson on justice. I want to pay tribute to the O'Farrell family. I met them on a number of occasions when I was in the role of Fianna Fáil justice spokesperson. And I think it's really remarkable the campaign that they have put in and the fact that they have stayed with this issue for their loved one, Shane O'Farrell, um, with such dedication and with such tenacity. I heard Lucy O'Farrell on the radio uh, last week and again laying out all the facts along the way in relation to it. Niall Collins paying tribute to the O'Farrell family, a sentiment uh, that was echoed right across the House last night, including by local TD, his Fianna Fáil colleague, Brendan Smith. I have heard Shane's mother, Lucia, speak on national radio and on our local radio in Cavan, Monaghan, Louth and Mead. And she has always spoke so eloquently and with such dignity on the awful tragedy that has beset that family and their quest for the truth. That campaign has been courageous and tenacious and has indeed commanded the attention, interest, sympathy and empathy of people throughout all of our island. Fianna Fáil TD for Cavan Monaghan. Brendan Smith joins us live on the line now. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. It would seem as though there is widespread support across the House for the O'Farrell family to get the inquiry that they wish into their son's death and how that death was investigated. But it appears as though that's not going to be the case. Well, it's disappointing, Minister Flanagan and Minister Staunton's um, response to the Fianna Fáil um private member's motion last night, <clears throat> excuse me, on the 14th of June 2018, the, we put a private member's motion before the All Ireland, which was, which was voted through, asking that the government establish a public inquiry into the death of Shane. On the 5th of February, I think it was, 2019, the Justice Minister announced the appointment of District Judge Halton to carry out a scoping exercise. Now, on the 24th of April, Judge Halton submitted terms of reference to Minister Flanagan, very disappointingly, in July last, the Department of Justice and Equality rejected the terms of reference submitted by Judge Halton. Our motion basically mm. is that the government should adopt and ratify the terms of reference as drafted by Judge Halton. And as, as my colleague Deputy Jim O'Cannon said in your clip there, no doubt about it, but Judge Halton has done a lot of work in preparing the terms of reference. He's a retired member of the judiciary. He knows how the system works. He has vast experience. And he also consulted with the O'Farrell family. Now, the O'Farrell family did not get everything into the terms of reference that they would have des- desired, but they expressed the viewpoint that they were by and large happy with Judge Halton's terms of reference. It's, it's not acceptable that the government are not implementing what was the spirit and the letter of the Dahl motion put forward in 2018 and subsequently put in terms of reference by Judge Hawthorne. Do we know that to be the case? Uh, Because uh, the judge's recommendations are to go to government on Friday, I think uh, the Taoiseach said yesterday. Uh, The Taoiseach has said, as indeed uh, the Minister Charlie Flanagan told your colleague John McGuinness earlier in the week, that the judge can make whatever recommendations he likes for a terms of reference. So how do we know what they are going to be? 
Yeah, but you're in, on July last, the department um, provided they provided terms of reference to Judge Houghton significantly narrower than both the judge's terms of reference and those provided in 2019. So in the meantime, since the course of the early part of this year, the terms of reference have been narrowed. So they've been decided. So they've been decided by the department. Yes. Right. We have to be clear that the department rejected the terms of reference submitted by Judge Houghton last July. And they then provided to him terms of reference significantly narrower than both the terms of reference submitted by the judge himself and those even provided by the minister in the previous February. So what we want to do here is to get to the truth in relation to the awful death of Shane O'Farrell. The reality is, and as Lucy O'Farrell has said Mm. so eloquently on LMFM and other broadcast media over the past number of years, the driver of the car who caused the death of Shane O'Farrell was at liberty when he shouldn't have been a man who had a string of serious offences committed. Is it that the department is misinterpreting this Supreme Court ruling in the Shattergearing case? With Jim O'Callaghan, our party spokesperson, he's, he's not just our party spokesperson on justice and quality, but he's, he's a senior counsel as well. He, in his response to Minister Flanagan last night in, the, in our Dáil debate, he stated that Judge Hockton won't be going out interviewing people and that. It's about material already collected and using that material in his inquiry because we want to ensure that the material that's already there from, from the prosecution, from the investigation, from GSOC, that all of that can be investigated. So it's important that all of that type of material is reviewed. The, the question to a lay person in regard to the Gear and Shatter case was that Mr. Shatter complained quite strongly, and to a lay person um, who hasn't legal training, he would seem quite right, in that there was only one person interviewed in relation to the inquiry where, where he fell foul of. So Jim O'Cannon made the point that this is significantly, significantly different position than, than, you, than relevant to the gear and shatter case. A liar, a thief, a crook... Indeed, a drug user uh, found in possession of drugs and a killer. Zygamantas Grzuska was deported. Uh, Nobody knows where he is now. Uh, He continues uh, to be at liberty as far as Lucia uh, uh, knows. uh, uh, Nobody seems to know uh, if he is free or which country he is in. Uh, Was he a Garda informer? Well, that that was um, suggested in the Dáil debate last night. I don't know. That was the first time I have to say that I had heard that, that particular statement and my colleague Jim O'Callaghan and we were speaking with the O'Farrell family after the debate late last night in Dáil Éireann and that was the first time that Jim had heard of that particular complaint or I had heard of it either. So Jim O'Callaghan said that he would make whatever inquiries he could in relation to this particular allegation. But the situation is that, that Judge Houghton must be allowed and have within these terms of reference the ability mm. 
to review the investigations that have already taken place into the circumstances of, of Shane's death. Okay, but it's a very important question, isn't it? Uh, because the questions uh, that are at uh, the heart of uh, this particular case for the family to get some sort of understanding as to why this man uh, was treated the way he was, why he was at liberty when he should have been behind bars because he had broken his bail conditions on so many occasions, and then why uh, he wasn't served with justice and was deported and was allowed to go off and maybe knock somebody else down in another country and kill them. But there's there's questions about the judicial system, uh, there's questions about Angarda Shiakana, Policing and justice are at the heart of this, uh, and as to whether there's been some cover-up to, co- to 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 protect somebody, uh, and if this man was a, a Garda informer, uh, well, then that uh, raises the stakes. Oh, absolutely! And if he was, then we, we should know that. But the, the, if this dem- this case and the the lack of justice in regard to Shane and and uh, and unfortunately his death. And um, by a person who shouldn't have been at liberty, that that person had a string of offences. He was in Monon Circuit Court. He was in Monon Circuit Court a number of occasions. He was in Carrickmore Cross Court. He was in Newry Court. He was back in Monaghan District Court, and it, it was a completely dysfunctional criminal justice system between both North and South. It's totally inexcusable. It's deplorable. And the absolute truth must be got to in relation to the death of Shane O'Farrell. And the terms of reference put forward by mm. Judge Horton and now put forward again in our Dáil motion and last night listening to the debate, all parties bar the government supported our motion. So, so explain to... I'm confident our motion will be voted through tomorrow. Oh, I, I have no doubt. Uh, just to explain to us what will happen. It'll be voted on tomorrow. It'll get the support of uh, the majority of uh, the House and what will happen then? Well, we would sincerely hope that the minister will go back to government with the with the proposals <laughs> as outlined by Judge Hopkins, no. endorsed <laughs> by Dáil Airden. Please, 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 please don't confuse our listeners, if you don't mind, by telling yeah, us well, what, well, what, what you hope for. Tell us what, what will happen in actual fact, which is that the government will ignore the motion, won't they? Well, I sincerely hope not, because th- this, is a, this is a case where a young man with a great future ahead of him um, lost his life in desperate circumstances and there has been a c- complete uh, miscarriage of justice mm. in relation to getting to the truth in, in relation to Shane's death. I would sincerely hope that the government w- would accept the spirit and the letter of the motion. And this isn't a motion that's grabbed mm. out of fresh air. No. This is a motion based on the terms of reference drafted by the judge who was chosen by the government mm. to carry out the inquiry. Surely, it, it, it's, it's, we're not putting before the all Erden something that's not possible, something that's not legal, something that's unconstitutional. What we have put before the all Erden, what we debated last night, is totally constitutional, legal, and it's the only mechanism of getting to the truth in regard to, to Shane's death. And I have to say that Judge Hopton consulted with the O'Farrell family. They wanted some other issues included as well. They didn't get those included, but they were willing to accept the terms of reference 
as outlined by Judge Hawke. Okay, well, we hope to hear from Lucia, who undoubtedly will appeal on behalf of uh, the O'Farrell family tomorrow to all members of the House to vote in favour of uh, the motion when that vote takes place uh, tomorrow. But we leave it there for the moment. And many thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Thank you indeed. Fianna Fáil TD for Kevin Monaghan, Brandon Smith. The Michael Reid Show. As a result of uh, an intelligence-led uh, search uh, yesterday in the Donor area of Drogheda, uh, a car was searched, and as a result of that search, uh, 20 kilos of suspected cocaine was found in the boot of the car, which you have seen here today before you. Um, a 29-year-old male was found in the car, and he was subsequently arrested under the Misuse of Drugs Act, and he's currently detained at Drogheda Garda Station under uh, the provisions of the uh, Section 2 of the Drug Trafficking Act. The estimated street value of the drugs recovered is approximately 1.4 million euros. A subsequent search of a premises in the Drogheda area last night yielded um, uh, 22,000 euros worth of cannabis herb was found at that premises. Also uh, yesterday at approximately 11.40pm, uh, a male uh, aged 38 years of age was arrested under Section 30 of Defences Against the State Act and he's currently detained at Drogheda Garda Station in relation to the recovery uh, as a result of an intelligence-led search in the Drogheda area of uh, three handguns and a, a quantity of uh, ammunition. Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan uh, speaking uh, to reporters yesterday about uh, significant uh, successes for local Gardaí. Let's talk about uh, this with P.O. Smith, who's a Labour Party councillor and uh, joins us in studio. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, How does 1.4 million euro worth of of cocaine compare with uh, what is being sold in Drada, do you think? Well, let's talk reality here. I mean, first of all, I'd like to congratulate the guards in Mm. relation to what they're doing so far and and the effort they put in and the resources that they've got. So Christy Mangan and Andy Waters have to be congratulating Mm. and the work they're doing. Uh, A year and a half ago when we spoke here, when there was only one patrol car, uh, you know, that's how far we've come since then. Uh, In terms of the drug market in Drogheda, it's a significant market. Like, if you look if you look at, say, the population in Drogheda between the ages of 14 and 39, there's 15,500 people in that age group. And 13.8% of them had, have admitted using uh, cannabis, for example, mm. in the last 12 months. Now, the price of cannabis ranges from 17 to 25 euros an ounce. So of each one of them, that, so 13.8% of 15,500 is 2,200 people. Now, that's about two joints a week for 52 weeks of the year. That's 2 million euros worth of cannabis. Mm. And that's a, that's an underestimate in my book right? in a year. In a year. Mm. So... The drugs trade in Drogheda, the market in Drogheda mm. is significant. Like so would you say when the Gardaí uh, seized one and a half million euros worth of cocaine, let's say, uh, that that's the equivalent of six months worth or three months worth? or? Yeah, well, it, cocaine can cost about 70 mm. to 100 euros a, a, a gram, you know, so there's probably about six to 800 cocaine u- active cocaine weekly mm-hmm. users in Drogheda. And they're probably using probably between a half an ounce and an ounce a week. Mm. So it's probably about three months supply what they right. picked up yesterday. Okay, well that would really hurt the dealers. Mm. Mm. Yeah. There's no doubt it was a, a significant haul. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, it, was. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, and then the €25,000 worth of cannabis, salt in the wound perhaps, and the guns, uh, possibly uh, the most valuable part of it all, or how easily do they come across weapons? 
Yeah, well, that's that's the reality of it. I mean, weapons are very easily got nowadays. Oh, are they? Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, I mean, it's very simple to get mm. get a weapon if you need it. You know, and uh, like I suppose the proliferation of weapons and organised crime has come about since the the eighties and and nineties, and now. They're very, very easily got. You can actually get mm. them on, online if you need to get them online. I mean, the fact that the guards are carrying out so many checkpoints and house searches and uh, on-the-spot searches. Mm. Uh, I mean, in this Operation Stratus investigation, there's been nearly 1,500 separate investigations into uh, murder, attempted murder, kidnapping, etc. Mm. And that's on top of all of the daily policing that's required for the biggest town in the country. Mm. Uh, so you can see the demand that's been placed on Garda Shikana in, in, in the town, but also you can see the results that are coming in from it. And the reality is that uh, drugs markets are very active. Drugs gangs are competing for the market because a lot of money to be made. And arms, guns, handguns, even automatic weapons mm. are easy enough to get if you need them. Uh, online? Yeah, well, I mean, there's various various routes to bring mm. them into the country. I mean, uh, there are ver- various dealers around mm. the country that are willing to uh, supply various types of, uh, of weapons for mm. you. And I mean, online in terms of kind of contacting the various groups that, that can supply them to you. Really? I mean, I find it very hard to believe. Uh, Customs will tell you that if you try to buy Viagra online, that they'll <laughs> seize them uh, at the ports. Yeah. I, look, I mean, let's be real. You can't plug every hole, and that's the reality of it in, in, in this game. And if people really want to get their hands on something, they'll get it. And you'll always have people who will have a price, and if you can pay that price for them, they will bend the rules for you. All right. We'll hear just a, a little bit more uh, from the cops. We faced into this for the last 18 months. It, it has been pretty taxing on the people of Drogheda because the criminals involved have created a huge amount of mayhem for people living in Drogheda and have made life very, very uncomfortable for them. So we have received absolutely fantastic assistance from the people of Drogheda and I certainly want to reassure them that we will continue at pace with with our uh, targeting of the drug dealers involved. There will be no let up by the Gardaí in in the operation because we, we have to. We have to continue with it because, because of the maim and the misery they have inflicted on the people of Drogheda. The seizure and the discovery of the firearms was a totally separate incident, uh, a totally separate operation to the, the discovery of the drugs earlier in the day. Two totally separate operations. Superintendent Andy Waters and uh, Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan. Uh, I suppose there's three aspects to this, isn't there, Pio? Uh, one is uh, the discovery of uh, the drugs. The second is uh, the discovery uh, and seizure of uh, the weapons. And the third is the arrests. Which do you think uh, the Gardaí would feel are most significant? Uh, well, again, from my perspective, uh, I would guess the arrests in terms of getting information, uh, you know, that's significant in itself. I mean, my fear is that... Well, if that is the case, there's good news because five men have just been arrested this morning. Uh, we're just hearing uh, that five people have been arrested uh, by Gardaí with uh, cannabis estimated to be worth €90,000. Uh, it's following a, a raid on a grow house in Bettystown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that doesn't surprise me because, I mean, uh, the cannabis market in Ireland has been predominantly, not predominantly, but largely been supplied by people who have grown it. And uh, uh, in fact, there is reports to say that uh, foreign national gangs mm. are coming in and using kind of foreign nationals that are coming into the country to actually grow grow uh, weed in, in grow houses. Mm. So that doesn't surprise me. What I do have a fear of is, is in relation to resources. And I'm afraid that uh, the government will not allocate the same resources to the Drogheda Guards that's needed to keep this Operation Stratus going. The funding ran out on the 4th of November. 
uh, there's a question mark over it being restored uh, and uh, continued uh, and you're concerned obviously that that won't very, be the case. I'm very concerned about it because I mean like me and you spoke mm. about this about a year and a half yep. ago we had one guy a car going around the division around yep. the area mm. and uh, there was an attempted murder and it was just a joke at that stage mm. and we kept on about it and on about it and then eventually resources were got when the people of the town and the guards and the politicians mm. were all give, uh, crying out for, for it yep. but now we're at a stage where the budget is actually nearly dried up so mm. we have no commitment yet from the uh, commission. Well, the funding was up to the fourth. We've passed the fourth, yeah. uh, and uh, the question has been asked of the government on a number of occasions. And uh, the response uh, from uh, Fishock and to the Minister for Justice has been, "Well, it's an operational issue. This is uh, something for Gardaí to decide on how they'll spend the money that is allocated to them." Yeah, but the problem is that nobody was listening to the guards two years ago when they were asking for the extra uh, resources. Not one. I mean, when somebody mm. took out an automatic weapon and started spraying at a house in Harmon's garden and there was an outrage in the town. Then all of a sudden, uh, Charlie Flanagan was down. Then resources were given. So, like, we need that commitment. We definitely need it, and we need it in a clear-cut way because, let's be honest with this, if the gangs see any draw pullback in relation to any of the units around the town, they will take control. Mm-hmm. And they know it. They're waiting for that to happen. Yeah. Well, you're waiting for something to happen. There's been uh, two murders uh, and uh, one gang has taken two hits. uh, So I suppose retaliation for both of those deaths is inevitable. Yeah, and like, I mean, just up before the last police and committee meeting there, we were talking about how things had had died down. But only things had died down in the sense that there wasn't people getting Mm -hmm. killed or houses being burned. Uh, There was still active planning, active targeting, uh, active contracting of killers to come into this town uh, to take out other people. Uh, and that goes on the whole time. So you don't see it, we don't hear about it, but it goes on. Okay. Listen, thanks for coming in to us uh, this morning, local Labour Party councillor P.O. Smith. Now let's uh, take a look at uh, the front pages of uh, the local newspapers. Wednesday morning means uh, that uh, they're available to you in your newsagent. Marie is here as usual with them in studio and we're going to begin in Dundalk with the Democrat, which is also looking at policing issues. That's right, Michael. The pressure on local guardie to deal with mental health cases makes the lead story of the Dundalk Democrat under the heading unacceptable. The paper is reporting that local Gardaí are expected to deal with people who are at risk of suicide and with severe mental health issues when other services are unable to cope with them. At the Joint Policing Committee meeting last week in Dundalk, members heard that Gardaí from Gardaí that on numerous occasions over the past few weeks, vulnerable people have been placed in cells in order to protect them prompting chairperson Sean Kelly to say it was an unacceptable situation. Okay, the Argus in Dundalk looking at industrial action to be taken at DKIT. That's right, Michael. The paper's reporting that lecturers and researchers will den tools next Tuesday, November 19th, in a dispute revolving around what members of the TUI say is a lack of meaningful consultation on the Institute's uh, strategic future. I know we're going to be covering that story later on in the show, so anyone interested so should keep listening in. Uh, the Dundalk Leader also runs with the fr- strike action on its front page. Meanwhile, on page 8, the paper is reporting that the opening of the new four-star Fairways Hotel in Dundalk last Friday, following an extensive build involving a £12 million investment, will result in the creation of 110 jobs in Dundalk Town. OK, to Drada, the DI reporting on planning approval. That's right, Michael. It's a good news story in one sense, but still a long way to go in another. And the front page story reveals that Loud County Council has given the go-ahead 
for the new state of the art Alzheimer's Centre at Green Hills in Drogheda. But, and it's a big but, funding the project remains a huge headache for the local volunteers behind this vitally needed project. The branch faces a daunting task of having to fundraise a further 150,000 along with obtaining a leader grant of 200,000 to make the 1 million euro target. And they're saying that this news about the planning permission being given has made them even more determined, Michael, to reach that goal. Okay, I don't know how many people know Tony Kelly or the name Tony Kelly, but Tony Kelly is uh, the subject of uh, the front page story for the Meath Chronicle this week. That's right, Michael, and it really is some story. I was Mr. Nobody, but now it feels good to belong. How one man's lonely 35-year search to find his family came to an end in a Meath cemetery and a warm embrace at his father's graveside. That's the powerful and poignant exclusively story of the Meath Chronicle today. And Casey tells how 73-year-old Tony never gave up trying to find his family and after being reunited with his brothers and sisters says it's a wonderful feeling to belong. I think it's a story that Mm. will definitely offer hope, Michael, to others trying to find out where they've come from. And I think... One of the lines that really struck a chord with me was when he revealed that on his 73rd birthday he got his first ever birthday card for a special brother, something that clearly means the world to him. So sure well worth the read. All right, very good. Uh, that's the front page story of uh, the Meath Chronicle and indeed uh, the local papers this week. Thanks for that, Marie. The Michael Reed Show. Now, uh, the increases in rent continue, but uh, the inflation is at a six-year low, according to uh, the latest daft.ie report. Having said that, uh, there are still some fairly significant increases in what people are paying across uh, the country. Outside of uh, Dublin and uh, the commuter belt and the major urban areas, uh, there's a 6.8%. The increase in Dublin was 3.9%. Some big increases uh, in other parts of the country like Galway where it's almost 6%. Locally the increases have been 3.6% and the average increase has been 5.2%. Let's talk about this with Margaret McCormick, Information Officer with the Irish Property Owners Association. A very good morning to you Margaret and uh, thanks indeed uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Michal Martin was making the point in uh, the doll yesterday that nobody can afford to rent now, particularly young people uh, and young people can't afford afford to move out. If they do, they can't afford to save for deposits. Uh, And he was suggesting that the time is right now for a rent freeze. What do you make of that? I think that it would be a serious mistake, Michael. It would be a hugely serious mistake. The first thing they need to look at is that the DAFT report deals with new tenancies. So people that have not not in a tenancy already going into a new tenancy with new rents. So it's new rents, not existing rents. And the RTB report in September outlined that existing rents are around 20% lower than new ones. But to go back to a rent, if, if we were to do something like a rent freeze, it makes absolutely no sense. Uh, we've, we've already got rent pressure zones, and the rent pressure zones take no account of the level that the rent was set. So if somebody had very low rent, and there's an awful lot of people out there who had very good tenants mm-hmm. for a long time and rewarded those good tenants by keeping the rents low, and they're in a situation now where they cannot um, vary them except under the rent pressure zones, when we can have two properties next door to each other with completely different rents, maybe even 60% higher in one mm-hmm. than the other. And, and there's no account in that situation taken of the level of indebtedness of the landlord. Okay, so... Uh, now, 
So, uh, I mean, you could have somebody charging a thousand euro and you could have a property of uh, very similar nature next door uh, for 1500. Uh, so uh, there would be a degree of unfairness in that. And I'm sure you make a, a valid argument. But what about a, a cap on rents? Again, the same the same thing applies. It's very difficult to do something like that. We we already have rent control, which is a cap on rents. Um, it's fundamentally unfair because, as I said, it didn't take into account the level the rent was being set at in the first place. Uh, the the uh, it also doesn't where they cap something, they're not going to cap costs on the other side. So if they don't cap costs on the other side, the provision of the accommodation gets more expensive, but the income doesn't. So what happens is we actually lose. Uh, accommodation from the sector. Um, and it's, it's a certain, uh, you know, it's, it's very appalling I- I- um, situation then because rather it, it, it would be fine for anybody in a property. Mm. It wouldn't be fine for a property owner because they would have to come out of the market in a lot of cases because it, w- it just wouldn't be affordable for them. Um, I mean, anywhere they, they, they bring in rent um, control, it's, they have serious, serious issues. In fact, the, the Swedish economist um, Lindbeck, he said very clearly that uh, in many cases, rent control appears to be the most efficient technique presently known to destroy a city, except for bombing. Because if, if, if the income isn't there to, to maintain and to keep a property sustainable, mm. then what happens is, is, is that properties go down um, in standard. Okay, but if that's true, Margaret, how, how is it that somebody can afford to rent uh, their property out for a thousand euro, and the person next door is renting it for fifteen hundred euro. I, I mean, surely there's five hundred uh, of unnecessary profit there. Well, I, I'd love to say there's five hundred uh, profit there. You've you've got two different prices, but you've also got two two different levels of um, maybe of indebtedness. So if, if if you purchase a property, it's going to take you twenty five years maybe to pay down the repayment element of, and, and obviously you're paying interest for 25 years and you're paying um, the repayment for 25 years. After that period, you may be in a position that, that you're, you have less debt on one side. So, so your, your rent may be lower. But you've got to also look at the tax treatment of the sector because that's hugely unfair. Uh, so you're looking at uh, the Within the tax treatment, we say 40 or 50% of the tax will go back to the state, mm. maybe 52% goes back to the state. So the biggest taker out of that situation is the state. The state actually takes over half the income. Not, so when you're looking at uh, somebody's looking at a, a landlord and they're giving um, maybe a landlord that's lucky enough to have spent the last 25 years paying down, having no income during that period, um, and, and managing and running and all, having all the liabilities around a property has now got to a stage where they, maybe they, they own that property. They are still giving back to the state over half of that income. So they're not getting the, the €1,000. They'd be lucky to be getting 500 And if you take it that even a landlord that owns a property outright will have expenses, uh, we're looking at insurance, uh, maintenance charges, mm. um, you know, uh, general sort of things that go but, wrong that have to be dealt with. But house so, prices are, are such now that uh, on average a first-time buyer is spending a third of their income on a mortgage. Uh, realistically speaking, if you're renting out the house, you're spending nothing on your mortgage. Somebody else is paying it for you. Um, well, what what you're looking at there in, in a lot of cases is, is one that you, you have to take the borrowings on. You take the risk. You have to be in a position... 
Um, there's not much risk in, in this day and age, oh, though, is there? Oh, there's huge risk in this day and age. There's, there's always been a risk. I mean, it, it'll take us, uh, or it'll take a property mm. owner over a year, maybe longer, to, to get an unpaying tenant out of the property. How long would it uh, take to get a paying tenant in? Oh, it, well, About it, 10 it, it, seconds. It, it's quick to, in, in the current market, mm. it's quick to find somebody. But, well, they queue, they queue the up property. the street, don't they? Um, in some places, there's, there's a bigger, larger demand than other places. But there is, a, there is mm. a, a huge demand for the property. The problem is that if somebody in it that is actually queuing there um, and they, they come in and they get the property, if they don't pay their rent, it will take a landlord on the other side over a year to get them out with no income whatsoever. Mm. So th- at that stage, you're looking at somebody that has to pay back the bank. Okay, so would that be the solution to make it easier to evict people who don't pay their rent? It's part of the solution, and it's absolutely crucial. There has to be a situation where there's fair play for both sides. Uh, I mean, the law in- insists that, that you keep somebody in the property, non-paying rent, while they're not paying the rent, during the process of dispute resolution, um, all the way up to the courts until the sheriff is, 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 is brought in. If we could get somebody out much faster, that would make it much. It, it would it would reduce the risk. That's that's and that's very important because that will may encourage more investors in. But you've also got to look at the tax treatment of the sector as well. Mm. Um, that's something that needs to be looked at. We need to, we need to get it. It needs to be treated as a business like any other business. So fair play needs in in that situation. And the other is is the legislation around the sector is hugely complex. I, I can't explain to you how difficult it is. Okay. For an individual to manage property because it is extremely complex and extremely difficult and 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 at the end of the mortgage repayments when you end up with a property worth 300 500 700 a million uh, what would be fair play in that circumstances when it comes to taxation should there uh, be a, a tax on this uh, asset that you've suddenly uh, realised uh, that so, that somebody else has bought for you. If we sell a property, we will pay capital gains. So the property, there will be tax on it there. So all the way from from start to finish, there's tax on the property. You'll pay t- uh, the taxes on the But, but when you realise this asset that is worth a, a fortune that somebody else has bought for you, uh, should there be a tax at that stage? Well, I, the first thing, I, I, I would argue that, that, that you have you have managed and rented out a property for, say, up to 25 years. You have been responsible for everything around that, um, from, from ensuring that it's up to standard, uh, dealing with any maintenance or issues that need to be dealt with, cleaning, gardening, all of the things that have to be done between lettings. Then you have got, obviously, got to go back and, and deal with the accounts, uh, mm-hmm. do the accounts, issue them into revenue. None of that, at any stage of that, for an individual landlord is allowed to be taken as 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 a cost to them. Okay. So they have to do all of that within their own time, um, without any any sort of offset for that management. Okay, I have to leave it there, Margaret. Thank you very much indeed, though, for joining us here this morning, Margaret McCormick, Information Officer with the IPOA, the Irish Property Owners Association. 
The Michael Reed Show. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie is here with some of uh, the calls and comments that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Maggie. Morning, Michael. Um, it's been another busy morning on the phones. So I'll start off with some of the comments actually relating to a piece we did yesterday. Um, Sarah was in touch in relation to the new laws on cyclists. She thinks that the new laws aren't workable because as both you and Deputy Fergus O'Dowd said yesterday in the interview, how do you judge a metre or half a metre? Um, it'd be a real case of he said, she said with these incidents and no concrete evidence of any wrongdoing or are we destined to become a nation where everybody has dash cams or body cams so they can document all journeys in case they're accused of any wrongdoing? Well, I was reading in the paper some of the cyclists think uh, that that will be the case but I can't see how it could possibly be admissible in evidence in that uh, it would be very difficult uh, to know if uh, the cyclist uh, was obeying the rules of uh, the road or being appropriate in terms of how they used the road or if they were in the middle of the road or if they went into the middle of the road because there was a pothole on one side of the road and they did that all of a sudden and unexpectedly without any prior notice or the motors having a, a chance to adjust their driving. I am on the same subject, mm. Siobhan um, says she's been really taken aback by the reaction to these new laws um, for cyclists and she feels it's a really bad reflection on our society. Surely any laws designed to protect road users, be they motorists or cyclists, have to be welcomed. Um, she says she knows that a lot of people have issues with cyclists but they have a right to be in the roads as well and they're trying to use a more environmentally friendly mode of transport. She's just astounded by the level of venom that's been levelled at them. Um, she said people are always talking about cyclists being reckless but she says she doesn't hear anyone referencing the reckless driving behaviour of car owners while dealing with cyclists she's really disappointed by the reaction to what it, what are essentially measures to make the roads safer for everybody to use hmm. I get the point uh, just not sure if uh, the laws are realistic and on the same subject, Anne and Mead says she thinks we're missing the key point. We're all missing mm. the key point when it comes to these new rules. Mike, or motorists are the ones bearing all the pain. We have to pay road tax, insurance, NCT costs, etc, etc. Cyclists don't have to pay anything. This new law seems very unfair to me, she says, because it vilifies the driver yet again. What about laws to prosecute cyclists for their own reckless behaviour, which endangers themselves and other road mm. users? Well, I think a lot of the roads aren't designed for either uh, I mean, a lot of the roads are, were designed for horse and carts uh, in all reality. Uh, and uh, now there's a lot of cars on the roads. And there certainly isn't the space on a lot of the roads for the bicycles. And uh, you're taking your life in your own hands by cycling on a, a lot of the roads. And I think a lot of the concern that a lot of people have is for the cyclist and how the cyclist has taken it on themselves uh, to demand space on the road. Uh, uh, the unfortunate part of it is is that whilst maybe they should have the right and whilst maybe they are environmentally friendly and whilst maybe uh, it's good to keep you fit and whilst maybe uh, they are, are as entitled to be on the road as anybody else, they're a lot more vulnerable than anybody else on the road. Uh, and if uh, they come out uh, on the wrong side of an accident with a motor car, uh, there'll be very serious consequences for the individuals involved. Um, on the same subject, Kieran um, is not really happy with you. Oh, um, he's saying okay. he's unhappy with the um, view that you're taking on this new law. He's saying that you're kind of coming at it from the angle that the law has the potential. Uh, he's saying the law, this law has the potential to protect a vulnerable group of road users, but you seem to be constantly making the point that you, you seem to think that it's flawed. Um, he said, well, no, I didn't say it was flawed. I said it was daft completely and utterly daft. You cannot have a, a law that requires a motor car to drive at the speed of a bicycle behind a bicycle for a, a, an indefinite period of time. And that seems to be what this law is saying. 
Okay, well, mm. I'll just continue with his mm-hmm. point. Mm. He's asking the question, how many road users have been killed by cyclists? He said that motorists kill, and that's a fact that we can't escape. He says he gets the impression that you're... But why doesn't he listen to himself? That's exactly the point. And think of your own safety. Okay, but he's saying he's getting the impression that you're enjoying all the negative comments about cyclists. He said you never once did anything, said anything to warn motorists that they or we are in notice that a dangerous overtaking oh, well, is, I have, is an offence. Yeah, yeah, no, and I have, and uh, I wish uh, it was differently, and uh, I wish uh, that we lived in a, a country that catered for cyclists uh, and uh, made it possible to cycle safely in this country. And as things stand, as the infrastructure is... Uh, I really think there's only one solution. If you want bicycles and cars to share the roads, uh, you have to make all the streets one way. Okay, well, on the same subject, and this is actually mm-hmm. the last one on it today, yep. um, Pat and that boy says that the... Um, sorry, on cycling mm. today. Um, Pat and that boy is saying that um, the motorist is constantly getting it in the neck. He would advise people, anyone driving a car, to get a dash cam. It doesn't lie and can't be contested. Also, there's no need for cyclists to ride four abreast or in bunches. They have to respect the rules of the road as much as the next person. Okay, and if you are driving, please... Please, please uh, be careful and give due consideration for everybody on the road. Now, let's uh, talk about racism. Uh, That's uh, the charge uh, that's been levied at Noel Grealish, an independent TD, uh, who undoubtedly made some racist uh, comments in Galway recently about uh, the idea of a direct provision centre in Uchtarard. Uh, he obviously uh, enjoyed the feedback uh, that he, he received in relation to that uh, because uh, he's continued on in the same vein uh, making comments about Nigerian people in the doll. Uh, to assure the Irish people that this money leaving the country which is averaging out at just over €1 billion Euro per year is not to proceed and I know a lot of it, Taoiseach, and an awful lot of it is genuine money but I just want to ensure and a commitment from your government that there's proper controls in place Money being transferred over there without proper control or managing needs to, needs to stop, Taoiseach. And Taoiseach, the question I'm asking to you is what controls are put in place to ensure that all this money is proper, is proper paid and tax is properly paid on the, on the Taoiseach? That's the question I'm asking, that the proper controls put in place. Your constituents know that. Thanks, um, uh, thanks, Deputy. I, 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 I'll treat your question as, as a genuine one, um, and I'd only say two things. Uh, first of all, if you have any evidence, any evidence whatsoever, uh, that somebody, uh, that, that, that anyone is sending money um, abroad that isn't theirs, um, do pass it on to us, and, and we'll have it checked into. And secondly, I'll get you a detailed reply from the Department of Finance and Revenue Commissioners as to what controls are in place, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that there are a lot of controls in place uh, around, around money laundering. You can barely open a bank account in Ireland without, without, without ID. You know? I don't know. Are there uh, that many people in Galway who'd support uh, those views? I really am unsure, but uh, they've been raised again, this time in uh, the National Parliament. Uh, and as you heard, there was very strong reaction, in particular from Ruth Coppinger. It, it spilled over into another uh, debate later on in the Dáil. I'll always shout down racists. Always shout down racists. This is about water. Please, deputies. Please, deputies. So, Ken Corler, I think... I think you should, you shouldn't, you shouldn't if the notice Deputy, you shouldn't level that accusation against a member. I said I'll always shout down racists. I, yeah, you know, you that's the reality. That accusation against a member. And 
There's not a hope in hell of me withdrawing it, so you can just forget it, OK? okay. The point is that this is of national issue. Minister. Would you? A bit sensitive on the racism issue. That's uh, Ruth Coppinger speaking in uh, the Dáil at Odds uh, there with uh, the Healy Rays and Matty McGrath following the question about uh, Nigerians. What a really awful question that Noel Grealish uh, put uh, to the Taoiseach in uh, the Dáil yesterday. Anyway, that's uh, some of uh, the response uh, and undoubtedly it'll be uh, one uh, that will be voted on in Galway and I'm sure uh, that uh, Noel Grealish uh, thinks there'll be great support for those disgusting views. But anyway, uh, let's go back uh, to some more of uh, the calls that have been coming to us. What else have you uh, been hearing from people, Maggie? Um, on the issue of the drug seizures and um, the Garda success mm. this week in Drogheda, Tommy says credit where it's due um, to the Garda for all their success over the last couple of days with the drugs and gun seizures. He says we're all very quick to slate the guards when we don't see immediate results, but we should praise them when it's deserved. He says he knows people will say that these um, operations or seizures are just the tip of the iceberg and that might be the case, but at least it's a start and a bit of reassurance for the people that work is ongoing to tackle the problem. Yeah, yeah. At the well, time. I think it was a, a significant haul in fairness. Uh, yeah, 20 kilos. Uh, suitcase worth of cocaine uh, it takes a, a lot of lines uh, to get through a suitcase worth of cocaine I'll, I'll bite to hear yeah, knowledge on that subject then um, Damien listens to the show regularly um, he says um, he actually just rang in with regard to the crime and the feud discussion on the programme this morning and he rang in with regard to the Touch pub he says that the pub has been set on fire so many times at this stage um, and now they're back repairing it again this morning he's asking the question is this a pointless exercise um, why are we repairing it when inevitably are we facing another situation in a couple of months where it's going to be burnt again is there a possibility of having CCTV installed in the area and he thinks that a conversation needs to be had to protect the structure. Okay. Uh, I hope you're wrong uh, uh, when uh, you predict uh, that it'll happen again, Damien, but uh, thanks uh, for making the point. And on the issue of Lisa Smith and her interview mm. yesterday, and I know it's a topic we're coming back to now shortly on the programme, um, James doesn't think that the government should be wasting huge amounts of state money to bring Lisa back home. Um, she knew what she was getting herself into when she made the decision to travel and he thinks that that money would be better used to help some homeless families in time um, to get homes in time for Christmas. On the same subject, Marie believes that uh, Lisa ha- right, Smith has no right to expect the government to bail her out of a mess of her own making, take the innocent child home and let Lisa's family raise her. Lisa should be left where she is. Um, on the same subject again, and listened to Simon Coveney talk about our responsibility to Lisa Smith and her child. And she says that while she accepts we have a responsibility to an innocent child, she doesn't buy into the notion that we have a responsibility to Lisa herself. She gave away her rights to protection from this country when she made the decision to travel to Tunisia. And um, I'll just finish up on the issue of rent prices. Um, Davy says it's all well and good for Leo Radcar to say that a rent freeze won't solve the current housing crisis. But what exactly are government doing to tackle it? A rent freeze may not solve it, but it will definitely help the tenants that are currently being priced out of the market. Okay, thanks for that, Maggie. The Michael Reed Show. We did send uh, defence force personnel to Turkey uh, to support our, our embassy team there. Um, That was mainly because there was an ongoing conversation, and still is, uh, between our embassy in Ankara and the the Turkish military. And it makes sense to have military personnel speaking to military personnel. Uh, Although some people were suggesting that we were sending over uh, Defence Force personnel to to extract Lisa Smith from uh, northeast Syria. That is not the case, and was never the case. Um, um, They are providing an important support role both from a security perspective, uh, but also a communications perspective, to the ambassador and her team 
uh, in Ankara. Uh, and, and that isn't unusual. Um, Defence Force personnel have supplemented uh, our embassy teams in other parts of the world as well. Um, so that is what they are doing there. Um, but I think, like on all sensitive consular cases, the focus, I think, has to be on the individuals and their family uh, rather than making it a, a, a public story. There will, of course, be a time to answer all questions in relation to, to this case. Um, from our perspective, there are only two people involved in the conversations that we have with the Turkish authorities at the moment. Um, uh, one is a, uh, is a very young child uh, in a very vulnerable situation, uh, and she is my primary concern here. Uh, and I believe we have obligations in that regard. There are all sorts of questions around radicalization, around questioning, around the role of Angarda Shikana uh, if and when uh, Lisa Smith comes home. Uh, and they are questions that we have to deal with comprehensively across government in multiple different government departments, but in particular in the Department of Justice and in my department, and we are working closely together uh, to make sure that we do what is appropriate here. Um, but as I say, my primary concern um, uh, is a two-year-old little girl um, who, in my view, uh, as an Irish citizen, we have an obligation to protect. Uh, and, and that is what is uh, driving all of this. The Thonisha, Simon Coveney, speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Lisa Smith's family live in Dundalk. Uh, their local independent TD, Peter, Fa- P- Peter Fitzpatrick, I beg your pardon, is with us in studio this morning. And uh, the family have asked Peter Fitzpatrick uh, to speak on the behalf. Good morning to you, Peter, and thanks uh, for joining us. Thank you very much, Michael. Um, what do you want to tell us on behalf of the family? Well, Michael, first of all, uh, the family has been in contact with me for the last number of months. I've been in contact with uh, Simon Coveney, the, the Tarnister, and the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, basically, the family asked me to explain who actually Lisa Smith is. Lisa Smith is a 38-year-old woman, and she lives in the dog. She's a former soldier. She converted to Islam. She was a member of the Irish Defence Forces until 2011. She served as a private in the Irish Army before being transferred to the Irish Air Corps. She is well, she served as a flight attendant. In 2015, she left Ireland to join the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levins in Syria, uh, following the breakup of her marriage. Uh, Oh, uh, she uh, she also got remarried again and the reason she got remarried again because uh, a woman can't live alone in that country uh, she has a baby daughter uh, in 2019 she was captured and detained by the USA forces in northern Syria uh, uh, she has denied being a member of ISIS she has she has she says she's not guilty she says she never owned a gun and she wants to come home to her, to her country she wants to come home to the dog and she's willing to uh, to testify and she's willing to talk to anybody to clear her name. Okay. Uh, and you've been speaking uh, in particular with Lisa's mother uh, and with her brother. Well, I, it's mainly the brother I speak to, but I, I met the mother on numerous occasions. I also met the sister. Uh, the position at the moment is there's a two-year-old daughter involved here at the moment and uh, the family's very concerned about the daughter and, 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 and the grandchild. Now, the mother has said that Lisa will will if if and when Lisa comes home, she will be investigated by the Garda, and there's no problem whatsoever with that. Uh, the mother said that she will look after the child until everything is is cleared up. Uh, as I said, uh, I'm I'm just here as a spokesperson for the family. The family do believe that uh, that that Lisa is is innocent of all charges, and uh, the, as, as far as I know, uh, when she comes home, she uh, the, the, she has no problem whatsoever of being investigated. What do they know about the little girl? Little Rakaya uh, is two. 
uh, possibly going on three at this stage? What happened was, uh, in the beginning, Michael, there was a lot of confusion whether it was a boy or a girl. And the reason was, the reason why she, she let people believe it was a boy, because in, in, in the campsite she was in Syria, uh, a lot of children at that age was being raped. So so she had to pretend that, that the child was a boy, because if they discovered that the child was a girl, they would have raped her. Now, she she she, she, she was detained in, in the campsite. A lot of bombs had gone off in the area, and she got an opportunity to escape. She walked for miles and days and everything else on her bare feet. Uh, listen... Uh, all she wants to do is... And a lot of bombs were going off because yeah. uh, Donald Trump gave uh, the Turks uh, the green light to attack the Kurds. Listen, Michael, I'm not, I'm no, not here to yeah. stand up. Yeah. Oh, no, just, no, no, oh, just, oh, just, just putting that into but, context. What yeah. I'm trying to say at the moment is, uh, in my job as being a TD, mm. and these, these, this family is in my consistency, and this family mm. is asking me for, my, for their help. Mm. Mm. And in, in fairness, when I went to Simon Coveney, uh, Simon Coveney contacted mm. the family and it's working very closely with the family. But there was a lot of concern for Lisa Smith's life at that stage uh, when Donald Trump uh, pulled out of Syria, pulled the American troops out of Syria, effectively giving uh, the Turks the green light uh, to attack the Kurds uh, because Lisa Smith and the other detainees yeah. were under Kurdish supervision. Uh, so if they were to attack the Kurds, uh, there was a chance she could have been killed as a result of one of the bombs. The family must have been up in arms. Well, uh, uh, she's been in, she's she's been in contact with the family over the last number of weeks. Uh, she's no phone anymore. She's using a friend's phone to text the family. She just asked the family, please, can you get me home? Like, like as, as, as I said, Michael is. Uh, I don't know why she's guilty or whether she's innocent. I'm just going to say that she, she has been an Irish citizen herself and a her child. All she wants is a chance to come home and explain exactly what happened. As I said, she she remarried again. Uh, the person she remarried again was killed. Uh, she has a she has a two year old child. As I said to you, like the, the campsite she was on was bombed. She walked, she walked for days and days on her bare feet, and she and at, at the moment she's she's in the, she's in Turkey at the moment, and at the moment the the Turkish government are, are, are want rid of all the European people that they have in the country. At the moment there's approximately twenty people there. At the moment is, and if, if the country don't repatriate them, they're going to deport them. And uh, uh, Simon Coveney uh, has sent over uh, military personnel to work with the, with the ambassador over there at the moment, and I think it's going to be maybe a couple of weeks before. Lisa and her child come home because first of all they have to make sure that Lisa and the child are, are who, they, who they say they are they have to get their documentation and everything else and, and then when, when Lisa does come home uh, the guard have an opportunity to, to arrest or detain her as such I mean, like, because it's, it'd be up to the, to, the, to, the, to the prosecutor whether or not the charges be done but when Lisa does come home uh, the family hopes that if and when Lisa is detained, that they would have an opportunity to look after the child. So she's been in contact. She's been on the phone uh, to her mother, uh, to her brother, to her sister uh, from Turkey. Uh, was she also on the phone to the family when she was in Syria? Yes. Uh, as I said to you, Michael, uh, uh, the time when when the campsite she was in was bombed, uh, she, I won't say they, they escaped. People, yeah, they, they, yeah. Everybody just fled from the yeah, campsite. Yeah. And her and, and, and other people headed towards the Turkish border. Now, she had a phone at that stage and she was in, in contact with her family. Since then, she lost the phone, but a friend of hers has a phone and she's been in constant texting to her family. And basically, uh, she, she kind of half knows what's happening at the moment. Mm. Is, uh, like as, as she said, she, she's willing to come home, give her part of the story is like at the moment uh, I, I don't know whether you believe it or not Michael but, but the amount of stories we've been told like I don't believe half them and like between half and half the, the, the truth in there at the moment is but she is saying that she's never been a member of ISIS she says she never owned a gun so as I said yeah, she should be given an opportunity to give her side of the story I'm sure the family have asked why why did she go to Syria 
Well, as I said, Michael, she she, she left the army in 2011. Uh, our, our marriage broke up. Mm. Uh, listen, Michael, nobody knows, Michael. Like, mm. It all depends what kind of... Like, me Good. growing up, like, mm. I, like it all depends what kind of company you hang around with, Michael. Yeah. Like, I, I, I'm a sports person. Most oh, people no. I hang around with sports people. Like, you wouldn't know what kind of. Like, she was a young woman. But she hasn't explained to the family, or that you're not aware of no. an explanation that no. she's given to the family no. about as to why she went to Syria. Uh, do uh, you know um, if uh, she uh, expects to be arrested when she comes home, or when she expects to come home, or if she expects to be able to stay with her daughter? Well, I think Michael, she expects. When she comes home, that she is going to be detained, and uh, she, she she would like maybe her child to be to to be with her family and the dog. Like as, as she said, it was uh, she wants an opportunity to to give her side of the story, and if her side of the story is, is that uh, she she she's done criminal activities or she was supporting the at the moment, is she is going to be in very very serious trouble. And uh, as I said, it's up it's up to her, and and like at the moment, she's under the responsibility of the Department of Foreign Affairs. The fact that she's in Turkey, mm. that when she comes home here, she'd be under the uh, the guard and the Department of Justice. And as I said, she, she, she will give, she will be given an opportunity. I always believe that a person is always is a, like in India. When, when I was in, when I was in the Irish Army, when you're in the army, you're guilty until you're proven innocent. But as, as an Irish citizen, you're innocent until proven guilty as such. So I'm just trying to say, is, let's like let's let's not determine whether she's guilty or not guilty. Give give Lisa an opportunity to come home with her child, and if she is guilty, let her pay the punishment whether whether she goes to jail or whatever it is. Yeah. But I'm just going to say. Well, I was making that point oh, yesterday yeah. to Jared Crockwell that we're all innocent until proven guilty. We all have that constitutional right, but that seems to have gone out the window in the case of Lisa Smith. Uh, she maintains her innocence. Uh, is she regretful at all? Is she sorry that she went to Syria? Does she think that that was a mistake? Yes, Michael. I, I think at, at the moment, like, uh, like when we all have children, you, 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 we all kind of change. Like, I'm, I'm a father. I'm also a grandfather, and, and uh, children do change her. And I think, like, where she is at the moment in, in, in Syria and that there, when you see what, what kind of conflicts are over there at the moment, is it, it can't be a nice place to be when you see all this bombing going off and when you see her trying to escape a camp. I, I'd say, and I. I say she has regrets. Like, you know, like, as I said, like, she really, really, really wants to come home. I'm just saying what the family's telling me. She really, really wants to come home. And when, uh, when, when, when she says she wants to come home, uh, does she want to come home to Ireland or does she specifically want to come home to Dundalk? She specifically wants to come home to Dundalk because she feels as though her family's, her family's there and uh, she doesn't want to go to any other part of the country. As I said to you, Michael, if she is guilty, mm. Michael, she'll have to pay the penalty. As I said to you, yes. her, her family are fully supportive of her. Uh, the, only pe- the only person that actually knows what Lisa, what Lisa has done. Now, I've know, I know the, the, uh, the, uh, the Irish government for the last four or five years has been doing an investigation into Lisa. They've been, they've been keeping an eye on activities in all, all parts of the world. She was in Africa. She was in, she was in, the, U, in, 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 in the UK. So, over the last four or five years, they've built up a dossier there, whether it's criminal uh, uh, mm. uh, record or whether it's, it's, it's supporting uh, the, the Islam over there. But I'm just saying to say, Michael, is let, let's give her an opportunity. She's an Irish citizen, okay. and when she comes to Ireland, if she is guilty, she will pay the penalty in her own country. And does Lisa Smith believe that she'll be accepted back by the people of Dundalk? Uh, li- li- I, I don't think she does, Michael. She, she, she doesn't really know. Because she's, she's hearing all these mm. different conflicts. Like, I'm well, there's a lot of people who have already said that they don't want her back. Uh, in fact, uh, some people have gone to the length of writing to the council, objecting to the idea of it. 
Well, as I said, you, Michael, uh, as as our local TD in, in the consistency, uh, her family has, has came to me. Uh, Michael, a lot of people come into my consistency office of the last nine or ten years being a TD. And a lot, a lot of people were, were kind of uh, looking for a second chance. And, and in fairness, Michael, a lot of them talk to second chance. Mm. I'm just going to say, if she's guilty, she will pay the penalty. And I, I'd be the first person to condemn her as such. But I do think that the only person that really knows what's going on at the moment is Lisa. Now, she's hearing different vibes with people coming, people don't want to come home to the dog, and people don't want to come home. Like, Michael, if she is guilty and if, she do, and if it is true what mm. they say she done is I don't want to see her come back to them dog mm. you know but I'm just trying to say the bottom line at the moment is she does deserve a chance I'm just trying to say in my consistency offices uh, a lot of people come in and half I, I think Michael is 50-50 at the moment some want to see her coming some mm. don't want to see but her coming but if she's not charged uh she'll have to be released and uh, then she'll have to be watched uh, and I think most people in this country would insist that Lisa Smith would be under 24-hour surveillance and uh, the indications are that that would be a huge operation and very expensive. It could take 32 people a day. We hear at a, a minimum to watch her on a 24-hour basis and that that could cost up to a million euro a year. I think the whole situation would be different if Lisa wasn't, wasn't a member of the Defence Forces. Uh, as a former defence uh, member of the army, army myself, is I know what it's like to get trained in the army. Is when I joined the army back in 1987, I've never really had a rifle, but I end up being a marksman in the army. The Irish Army is one of the best trained armies in the world, and to be honest, you know the, the, the training I got was second to none. Whether it was a rifle, a machine gun, a grenade, and everything else, like the, the training you get is absolutely fantastic. All I hope is that Michael, like, like, like Lisa didn't, mm. didn't, didn't pass on that kind of information. She says that she didn't. She says that she never held a gun over there. So l- let her come home. And as I said, the, 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 the department, the government over the last four or five years has been investigating Lisa because I, I think the news some stage that Lisa would want to come home. As I said, she has a two-year-old child. So as I said, yeah, when she comes home. She, 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 the guard, whether the arrest or not, is they've, you know, there is legislation there at the moment that they can hold on to the 2005 Act there at the moment that, uh, that if, if, if she was a terrorist mm. or maybe been involved in terrorism, that they can hold her. But I'm just trying to say at the moment, it's up to, it's up to the Department of, of Public Prosecution what, what to do or what not to do. Is I personally think that, I think that probably the fairest thing to do was that if Lisa does come home, that Lisa Polly will be arrested, she will be investigated, but I'm just trying to say that the two-year-old child should be allowed to go back home to her family in the dog. OK. No doubt the family want to meet little Rakaya. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's no doubt uh, about that. Uh, just to conclude, because we're actually way over time uh, at this stage, uh, do the family believe Lisa Smith and want to meet her as much as they do Rakaya? Well, as I said to you, Michael, uh, uh, as you know, the, the mother and father are separate at the moment, uh, 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 the mother, the mother, the mother, the daughter, and the son—they're—they're they're the people I'm, I'm talking there. They want Lisa home. They want the grandchild home at the moment. Is and as they said, is is all they want is an opportunity for the daughter to explain exactly what happened. And and they're fully aware that if Lisa is found guilty, she paid the penalty. But please give Lisa an opportunity to come home and give her side of the story. Independent TD for Louth, Peter Fitzpatrick. Thank you indeed for coming into us today. The Michael Reed Show. Now, there's to be a strike at uh, DKIT. Lecturers and uh, researchers are to commence uh, their action at uh, the Institute of uh, Technology in Dundalk on Tuesday, the 19th of uh, this month. Kevin Howard, beg your pardon, Kevin Howard, Branch Secretary of Dundalk IT Teachers Union of Ireland, is on the line. Good morning to you, Kevin, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, what's the cause of this? Good morning, Michael. Uh, thanks for having us on. The, basically, uh, the 
staff and researchers in DKIT have reached a point now where they are thoroughly and completely uh, fed up with the lack of consultation that takes place in the college. There are major decisions being made around the college that affect the college and fundamentally affect our students, and we're not being consulted on them, and we demand consultation. Such as? Such as there was a proposal the management put forward that the, t- the union found out, uh, came to the union's notice, of the creation of a fifth school in the college. Now, this fifth school disregarded all normal procedures, all normal rules of uh, uh, recruitment and academic standards. It was a complete travesty. It was an attempt to create a private school inside the college, and we're not having it. We're going to fight to protect the college from that kind of privatisation model. Why? Why do we want to fight to protect the college from privatisation? Mm. Because it's a, low co- it's a high-cost, low-quality form of education. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't allow people to develop a, a relationship with students. It's a precarious, in, precariously employed lecturers, yellow pack type of lecturing model. It really isn't uh, conducive to the kind of relationships we build with students in here that helps them to develop as, as learners. Will your members be required to work at this fifth school? The, the fifth school is open to people who want to apply for it. Mm. And so there's no are, requirement, in other words, on your members to work in this fifth school. So this has no impact on the terms and conditions of, of employment that your members are currently working under. Well, this is the thing about this strike. This is not a strike about our terms and conditions. This is a strike about the, the college. This is a strike about what's best for the students, what's best for the region, and what's best for the future. It is not us striking to protect our terms and conditions. We are sacrificing pay to go out on strike to prevent this kind of surreptitious privatisation of education in this college. It's not about us. We're not not trying to protect our students. Is it the interest of the students uh, that they can't go to lectures uh, because their lecturers are on the picket line over a principled position? Well, here you go. This is the point about this. The students fully understand this, and the students are out on the picket line with us next week. Well, I'm sure there will be some support for your action, but I'm sure there'll be students who wish uh, they were being educated uh, and that their educators were doing the job that they're being paid for. Well, I think that the students' union have done a good job in explaining the issue to their students, and I think you'll find that there'll be massive support amongst the student body for our action. Perhaps so, but that doesn't make it a, a cause for strike, or does it? Well, it, clearly it does, because, I mean, the thing is, we have this, this, this development of this this school was done behind our backs. It was done in secret. We only learnt about it. Uh, it wasn't presented to us uh, as, in a sense for consultation. But that, that, that comes back to my question about the impact or lack of impact on the terms and conditions of your members, or to put that a, another way, is it any of your business? Oh, Michael, the future of this college, the future, the welfare of our students is fundamentally our concern. I mean, to, 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 argue, to suggest that we have no interest or it's not our business what happens in this college to, in the future, in the, near, in the medium to long term, is ridiculous. Of course we have an interest in what happens to our students. Of course we have an interest in what happens to this college. We've given, most of us have given decades to this college. Mm, an interest in students uh, that uh, you're currently responsible for or an interest in students that will go to this uh, fifth school, uh, as you call it, uh, this private uh, new direction uh, that DKIT may decide to go in. Uh, I don't think that uh, has uh, been uh, rubber-stamped as such, has it? 
Well, we don't know because, I mean, we're fighting to prevent it being stamped in, even uh, getting to the position where it could be rubber stamped. And you're walking off the job, uh, although you don't know what the position is. We are walking off the job in protest at the lack of consultation around the development of this new model of learning, this new, this new type of school. We see it as a surreptitious attack on, on, how, we, on how learning is, 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 is conducted in this college. By whom? By management. Uh, and is that what's really at play here? Is it a breakdown in relations between management and staff? I wouldn't say it's a breakdown in relations. What we're saying is we, 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 we're really protesting strongly at the way in which the development of this school took place. We're really protesting strongly at the, in a sense, uh, complete traducing of our traditional consultation processes. This is, you know, the names in the, uh, the clues in the name. This is a college. Things are here. Things are done here in a collegiate manner. Uh, developing kinds of, you know, new policies that are outside of any consultation process, and then they're presented as a fait accompli. We, we, that's not how things are done. A, a fait accompli. Is, is, yeah. that, is, is that how you're perceiving life in the workplace now? Is this a personality clash with the President? When you talk about a fait accompli, when you talk about the President acting unilaterally, as you have in a press release, when you talk about the President actively suppressing discussion, uh, it indicates that there is a, a bigger problem at the root of all of this. Isn't the President... We don't. We don't want to personalise this. This is not about the personality of the president. Well, we you're, but well, 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 well. With Let's respect, well, with re- well, with respect, your press release referred <laughs> to the president unilaterally acting in, in a way that was at odds with your members' views and actively suppressing uh, discussion. Uh, so I think if it has been personalised, it's been personalised by the TUI, has it not? No, we would say that the, there's a style of management. We don't want to personalise this to our person. It's a style of management. If you want to uh, interpret that as an attack on the president, fair enough. But that's well, that's well, your well interpretation. I re- no, no. Well, well. During the two years uh, since uh, the president uh, became president, the president has actively suppressed discussion. Uh, I mean, uh, you're making it uh, personal to the individual who is president at the moment. No, we make it what we're what we're what we're identifying is a style of management that has emerged over the last two years. A style of management that. It seems to disregard the uh, normal uh, collegiate way of this, of doing business in this college and any other uh, workplace, really. Okay, uh, we did ask uh, that DKIC would put a, a representative uh, forward uh, for a discussion this morning. Uh, they declined that invitation, and uh, they have issued a, a statement. Uh, it's the same statement from a, a number of days ago, which I'm sure you've seen as well. But they do say that there's a, a period of consultation, and that that is an open and constructive dialogue, or at least that that's what they'd like to have with the TUI about uh, the strategic direction uh, that DKIT will take in future. What's your response? Uh, to listen, we're the TUI, we're a trade union, we're always open for dialogue. It's, it's, it's what we do. The first thing before any dialogue can, can take place in relation to the fifth school, however, the proposals that were presented to us as if they were uh, fait accompli, as I say, the timelines, the, the appointments, all this, those proposals have to go. If there's going to be, if there's going to be consultation, negotiation, and a discussion about how we might improve. Uh, delivery of courses and all the rest of it in DQIT, that they, they can't, they have to start with a blank sheet. Okay. So what happens from next Tuesday uh, if there isn't uh, some form of resolution or, or scope for talks, uh, that's it, uh, the college effectively shuts down, does it? 
College of the nineteenth of November is the first of our uh, our actions. We'll see where we go from there. It, we're hoping that management will uh, will engage constructively with us. If they don't, then we will continue to strike action. Okay, Kevin. all the other days. Okay, we'll come back. We, uh, uh, Dave, uh, Michael. Yes. One thing we are fighting here, as we see it, to save DKIT. We think we should be a technological university, and we we're going to fight against the introduction of this type of new school that's uh, that we seems to be developed in secret behind our backs. Okay, Kevin, I have to leave there, but thank you indeed for joining us here on the program. Okay, thank you indeed. Kevin Howard, Branch Secretary with uh, Dundalk IT Teachers Union of Ireland. The Michael Reid Show. Government after government has uh, struggled uh, with hospital waiting lists. Uh, they've never been worse. More than half a million people waiting on uh, some sort of hospital appointment, depending on who you speak to. That could be as many as a million people waiting to be seen in hospitals. The Minister for Health says he hopes to reduce waiting lists by 25% and free up 2,000 beds by eliminating private medicine in public hospitals. Uh, this is being criticised by by the IHCA. Dr. Donald O'Hanlon is the president of the Irish Hospital Consultants Association and is on the line. And a very good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. What's wrong with the Minister's proposal? Well, I, I think I think the, the Minister's proposal is way too simplified um, and we actually haven't seen the substance of his proposal yet. Um Many of the people who have private insurance who come to a public hospital come on an emergency basis. In fact, most of them do, by far the majority of them. Or they come for a very complex treatment uh, that can only be provided in a public hospital. So it's not like most of those people having an option to go to a private facility for their treatment. They actually need a well-functioning, adequately funded public system Indeed, if they arrive as emergency patients, uh, their insurance uh, has little or no bearing. Uh, they're treated like anybody else, aren't they? That's correct, yeah. And, uh, you know, most people are admitted, well, over 50% are admitted out of hours. Most people come, over 50% come by ambulance to most of the biggest hospitals. So really, it's people coming in, you know, with chest pain or coming in with an acute pneumonia. And they really, it's not an elective type procedure for most of those patients. So I think, I think the figure of 2,000 uh, beds is, is, is really exaggerated. Um, and I think the Department of Health would be, would be able to produce other figures for that, you know, to actually tease out how many of these are emergency or complex presentations that can only be treated in a public hospital. But if there was a reduction in the waiting lists. Uh, that would be in everybody's interest, would it not? Uh, because private patients generally don't have to wait for procedures in the way that public patients do. Well, uh, again, most of the beds in the public hospital are actually taken up with emergency presentations. I think that's the point. The waiting lists are, are, are uh, to see a consultant, for example, they are very large, like it's over half a million people now. And um, the problem there is that there's a lack of consultants, uh, lack of consultants taking up posts or uh, or, uh, even maybe too few consultants for a particular service in a particular area. And, you know, you look at the figures in in the northeast as well as everywhere else that, you know, there are 4,000 people waiting in Drogheda over six months. There's uh, 3,500 people waiting in Cavan. Um, You know, so those are all 
people waiting for a public service that can't be delivered because A, there isn't a consultant available to see them, or B, there isn't a bed available for a procedure to be done afterwards. You know, and the, the, the higher number of, of uh, people on waiting lists is for all types of service, be it radiology, uh, daycare, surgery, procedures of all types. But about a half a million are just waiting for a consultant. This can be very long as well, like over six months. Okay, uh, but uh, would it take uh, away some of the income uh, that uh, people enjoy through the private system? Is that what's at the root of doctors' concerns? No, I think our our concerns are really the functioning public system. And I suppose the concerns uh, with this proposal, uh, and it's a very sketchy proposal at the moment, are twofold. Number one, um, we don't think that there are many people coming in electively to most of our public hospitals, the mostly emergency uh, patients coming in for an acute admission or complex treatment that can only be given in a public hospital. I think the second part of it is that it does take about 600 million of hospital income out of the system. Mm. And that's about 15% of funding. And technically we have massive rating this. We have you know, we're over 100,000 on trolleys uh, for the second time ever, except this year it's about three weeks earlier than last year. Um, and the waiting lists are, are sky high. Um, we see actually using funding to actually build up a public system that works for everyone as the way to go forward. Um, you know, there were promises of extra beds being delivered, um, and that hasn't happened at the kind of pace that we really need to make a dent in the problem. Uh, Many of the beds that have come on stream are replacement beds rather than additional beds and they're coming along at a very slow rate. Uh, The department and uh, the department set up a a bed capacity review uh, group about a year and a half ago and they came up with the figure of needing 2,600 acute beds in the system to provide high quality care and they're really not being delivered at the rate that we need them. Um, it's worthwhile looking at European comparisons and we have about 20% less acute beds than most European countries. We have about 30% less than Scotland. Okay. And our, our, our waiting lists uh, continue to soar. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time and we have to leave it there for this morning. But thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Dr. Donald O'Hanlon, the president of uh, the Irish Hospital Consultants Association, brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 